This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. So it is good to be here with you today. I was here a couple of months ago and did a uh, workshop and uh, enjoyed my time with you. Uh, For those of you who don't know, I am originally from Alabama, so this is not a southern setting that's on the microphone. Um, But I am delighted to be with you today, and thank you for that introduction, Roshinda. I appreciate it. I have a lot of respect and admiration for the Canaanite woman in our passage. And I respect her for a lot of reasons, but my respect for her begins at the very start of the story in her simple act of going up to Jesus and starting a conversation. I respect that. I admire that because while you don't know this about me, I am a terribly shy person. And I have a hard time going up to people I don't know and starting a conversation. Now, I can do it in this kind of setting, but if we were at a party or something like that, I would be incredibly uncomfortable. So I respect the fact that she just walks up to Jesus and starts this conversation because I'm so shy that it is a miracle that I'm married. (laughs) I met my wife, Linda, in college. We were taking a class called Christian Spirituality, and The class went to a retreat center where we were going to have a three-day retreat and practice the spiritual disciplines. We were going to practice the disciplines of prayer, fasting, and silence. And we were going to be silent from 10 p.m. on Friday night all the way through noon on Saturday. And for reasons that I still cannot explain, completely out of character for my shy self, at 10 minutes until 10 p.m. on Friday night, I walked across the room to where Linda was seated, and I began a conversation with her. And I think about it, and I think, maybe I could do that because I knew I only needed 10 minutes of good material, and then I would be rescued by the spiritual discipline of silence. So I have a lot of respect for the Canaanite woman just from this simple act of starting a conversation. But it was more than just any conversation. She made a request, an important request. Now, I have a hard time making requests. I have a hard time making requests of people I know well, much less people that I have just met. Linda and I had been dating for two months, and we would go and we would sit in the car in the parking lot in front of the student center at our college, and we would talk about philosophy and theology and politics, the issues of the day. This was our version of parking. (laughs) And we had been doing that for about two months until finally one evening, and I will never forget it, we were sitting in the car and I looked over at her and I worked up all the courage I could muster. And I asked, Lyndon, would it be okay if I kissed you on the cheek? And we'd been dating for two months, so she said, yes! (laughs) And I sat there, frozen in fear, and fortunately she reached over and kissed me, and so we're married. Um, (laughs) 
Speaking of kissing, I'm going to say a few words about that. Um, did you know that the earliest Christians kissed every time they gathered for worship? And I'm not talking about a peck on the cheek. They kissed mouth to mouth. And the reason they did that is they believed that when you kissed someone, part of your spirit was shared with that person, and part of that person's spirit was shared with you. And if you kissed within the context of Christian community, God's spirit was shared throughout the family of faith. And they used these kisses as ways of distinguishing insiders versus outsiders. They would only kiss those who were within the community. They wouldn't kiss outsiders because they were worried that an outsider might have an unclean spirit, and then the unclean spirit would make its way into the community. So they only kissed insiders. They would kiss a person if that person was baptized as a part of welcoming them in. And they kissed as part of regular worship. Some of them had uh, very unusual ideas about kissing. Uh, some superstitions uh, developed. For example, some believed that you could cure the common cold by kissing the nostrils of a donkey. I think I'd just ride the cold out, don't you think? But they had these uh, views about kissing, and the early church took it seriously. And in fact, they had some rules about kissing. Uh, one of the rules was no French kissing in worship. Now, they called it something else, but that's what they meant. Now, I've been in a lot of churches, and I occasionally see signs that say, no beverages in the sanctuary, but I've never seen a sign that says, no French kissing in worship. <laughs> Their other rule was no second kisses. So if you went around and you kissed everyone as a part of the uh, community experience, and you really liked one of the kisses, you could not go back for a second kiss. But they took this seriously, and this was their way of saying, we are insiders, we belong to the family, you belong if we are willing to kiss you. And this was very important, and we know about some of this from Paul, who mentions this holy kiss, or the kiss of peace, five times in the New Testament. And it has been passed down through the generations until we arrive today at our current practice of passing the peace. So we no longer kiss, but we give a good handshake or maybe a slight hug. But that was an important thing in the early church, and it helped them know insiders from outsiders. Back to this Canaanite woman. This Canaanite woman approaches Jesus, and in this story, the Canaanite woman is the outsider, and Jesus is the insider. And I have so much respect for the Canaanite woman and her courage and her willingness as an outsider to approach Jesus, this insider, to ask for his help. Because this Canaanite woman as an outsider was someone that the early church would not have kissed. And they definitely would not have kissed her daughter because remember her daughter had a demon, an unclean spirit, and they wouldn't want to risk that getting into the community. So this outsider of outsiders approaches the insider of insiders. And think about all that she had to overcome just to get there. In the first century world, a woman didn't approach a man in public to question him. It wasn't done. She did it. And a Canaanite woman certainly didn't approach a Jewish man to question him in front of others. It just wasn't done. 
She did it. And a Canaanite woman, nobody. No name. We don't know this person. Certainly would not approach a Jewish male leader, a teacher, a person of significance in a public setting to question him. The Canaanite woman did. Because she's got courage, she's got grit, and she loves her daughter more than she cares about the rules. And I have enormous respect for her for that reason. And she comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, would you please heal my daughter who has an unclean spirit? And those of us who know Jesus well are surprised that he says no. And let's be honest, he's downright rude and mean about it. You don't take the children's food and give it to dogs. Never heard anybody say that's their favorite line from Jesus. <laughs> Never seen it on a t-shirt. But that's what he says. If you're familiar with Jesus, if you've read the New Testament, you know that just about every other occasion when somebody approaches Jesus with a question, that Jesus responds with a statement or with a question, and that usually ends the discussion. And the other person kind of slinks away because Jesus has really bested them in this verbal debate. Not the Canaanite she has a comeback. And her comeback is, well, yes, yes, I get that. But dogs can eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And Jesus is like, hmm, good point. You have your miracle. Had Jesus not changed his mind... We might be practicing a very different kind of Christianity than the one we practice today. In fact, I do believe that many Christians today are acting as though Jesus refused her and never changed his mind. But fortunately for all of us, Jesus relented and a miracle occurred. I have great respect and admiration for the courage of this Canaanite woman and for the love she had for her daughter that was more important to her than following rules. Last year, I read a very interesting book by a guy named Nick Riggle, who is a philosophy professor at San Diego State, and turns out the son of a United Methodist pastor. She has a church in San Francisco. And the book is called Being Awesome. And he takes a look at the word awesome and how it's been used. And uh, he talks about how one way that it has been used is to describe a situation where two people step outside of their normal roles and the normal expectations and they connect. They really connect as human beings. And he says that when one person goes first and does this, that this person creates what he calls a social opening. And if one person does a, creates a social opening and they invite you to join them in that social opening, they are being awesome. And if you take them up on it and you join with them in this unique moment in time, you're being awesome. But if you don't want to participate, 
That's not awesome. And he gives little examples, and he gives deep examples. A little example might be a conversation you start up with a waiter in a restaurant, and for those brief moments, you're not the customer, he's not the waiter, but you're two human beings, and you're kind of being creative together, maybe with humor or something like that. And you might say later, oh, that was awesome. He gives lots of examples. In my own life, I've had a few awesome encounters. When I was in seminary way back in the early 90s at Candler School of Theology in Atlanta, Georgia, during the summers I would work temporary jobs, and they were almost always data entry, you know, sitting there with a calculator or a computer and doing that all summer long to make a little money. One summer, I had a, a data entry temporary job in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Anybody ever been to Stone Mountain? Oh, from there, okay. You know what I'm talking about. So uh, I was working there, and there was another temp person working there with me. Sitting in the same room alongside me was a woman named Starlene. And Starlene was a young African-American woman, probably about the same age I was at the time. And over the course of that summer, she invited me into awesomeness. Because even though she was an African-American woman and I was a privileged white male, and even though she had absolutely no reason to trust me, she was willing to invite me into a real conversation about race. So that summer, we sat side by side doing our data entry, and we talked about race. And she gave me permission to ask questions. And I will never forget asking her, what's it like living in Stone Mountain, Georgia, as a black person? Now, some of you know, but many of you don't. In Stone Mountain, Georgia, there's a big stone mountain, hence the name. And on the side of that mountain, there are carvings of Confederate generals. And so I asked Star, Star, what's it like living as a black woman beneath the continual gaze of Robert E. Lee? And it was very moving. And she shared with me, and she told me about the conversation she had to have with her little daughter, trying to explain to her why it is that they lived in a place that revered and honored people who thought that she and her daughter should be slaves. That was an amazing summer, an amazing conversation. I look back on it, and it was awesome. Star allowed both she and I to temporarily step outside of all the stuff that our culture throws at us and connect as human beings. Thinking about it in that way, I think about this Canaanite woman approaching Jesus, this outsider approaching the insider, and how she was inviting Jesus into a social opening, a chance to be awesome, a chance to connect. It's as if she's saying to Jesus, look, Jesus, I know it's important that you are a Jewish male religious leader of significance. 
and I know that it's important that I'm a Canaanite woman, nobody. But could for just a second, could we set aside all that crap and connect as human beings? Because I need a miracle, and when people connect, miracles happen. And Jesus, let's face it, his first response, he was not being awesome. But she gave him a second chance, and thankfully the second time around, Jesus came through, and we have this awesome moment and this awesome story. Nick Riggle in the book gives another great example of awesomeness. It's one that you will recognize and get completely. Um, he says that this occurred for the very first time, October the 2nd, 1977, at Dodger Stadium. Dusty Baker, you remember Dusty Baker? He was at the plate, and Dusty hit a home run. Now, home runs are not that uncommon in baseball, and Dusty hit his share of them. And he rounded the bases, and when he got back to home plate, the next batter up, a guy by the name of Glenn Burke, was waiting for him for when Dusty crossed home plate. And they asked Dusty about it after the game. The media did, what happened between you and Glenn there at home plate? And Dusty said, well, I hit the home run. I was running the bases. And as I got to home plate, there stood Glenn, and he had his hand up. So I reached up and hit it. And that is the very first high five <laughs> to ever occur in American professional sports. And the high five was a great little example of awesomeness. Because when you invite somebody to high-five for just a second, you're saying, hey, let's step outside what we were doing. And if the other person joins you with a high-five, they're being awesome. But if they don't, oh, they have left you hanging. And that is not awesome. So now we can go back to our story and imagine the Canaanite woman is approaching Jesus. And the first time, Jesus leaves her hanging. But because she's tenacious, she tried once more. And thankfully, the second time, Jesus came through. A couple of things. Glenn Burke was the next batter. He hit a home run. Back-to-back -back home runs. Now, that doesn't happen every day. He rounded the bases, and when he got back, Dusty was waiting for him. And they had another high five. Glenn Burke was not only the initiator of the very first high five in American professional sports history, he was Major League Baseball's first openly gay player. Now I think about the people, the outsiders, and how many times they have approached our churches. And it saddens me to think of how many times and how many of our churches we have elected to leave them hanging and used Jesus to justify it. Now, our denomination just decided that we were not going to be awesome, that we were going to leave folks hanging rather than have full relationships, full inclusion. I can tell you that in the Western jurisdiction, we're not going to follow those rules. 
Because we place love before rules. Amen. Just like the Canaanite woman did with her daughter. So, I think about these outsiders and, you know, most of the time they don't have the willingness, the patience to come back a second time and give us a second chance. Most of the time, after they've been rejected the first time, they go away and that relationship is lost forever. So I am grateful every time I come to a church, one like your church, Ashland, a reconciling congregation that has said, we are going to be awesome. The other thing about the high five is you would think that a high five is something that you only do after a, a you know, as a celebration, as a way of, uh, you know, this, that was fantastic. You hit a home run. It certainly was in that case. But high fives are actually used in a lot more wide range than that. Uh, and you can know this if you've ever watched a basketball game. Last month, I uh, was watching uh, one of the women's basketball games during the NCAA tournament, and this player got fouled. And she went to the free throw line, and she had two shots. And she, uh, she took her first shot, and she missed it. And very quickly, her teammates gathered around her at the free throw line, and they high-fived. So it must not be a celebration, because they weren't celebrating the miss. And I'm thinking, maybe what it is, is the high-five means you belong. We got you. We're here with you. And we're going to encourage you. You'll, you'll, you'll do better next time. We're all in this together. And I think to myself, well, maybe if we add just a little twist to it, maybe the high five could be our modern-day version of that old Christian kiss. Except the early Christian used it to distinguish insiders from outsiders. Whereas we can use it to say we want to be awesome with everyone. And we want to be supportive. And we want to encourage. And we want to extend grace. And we want to listen. And we want to have awesome connection. And to me that would be a marvelous, marvelous new way. More graceful way of practicing the early Christian kiss of peace. Now, I believe that this is an awesome church. I see the rainbows. That's fantastic. Uh, but you can't practice being awesome enough, in my opinion. So I'd like for you to stand. And we are going to close this sermon by high-fiving the people around us. So let's get...